Oh, our um, text for today is from the first chapter of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1, and uh, this begins a brand new sermon series. As Bob mentioned, it's called Psalms for the Summertime. So this whole summertime, we're going to be thinking about the book of Psalms and meditating on the book of Psalms and singing the book of Psalms and studying the book of Psalms and we hope even provoking you or, or um, leading you to study the Psalms yourself uh, during the week. And that'll start today and it goes all the way through Labor Day. And because we're going to go through all the Psalms, that means we are going to be exposed to life and all its seasons and all its moods. Because one of the wonderful things about this book is that it, the Psalms lead you into a place that deals with all of life's seasons and all of life's moods. The Psalms go to every place human beings can go. They go to the places of, of goodness and light, like praise and joy and thanksgiving and contentment. But they also go to all the dark places. Despair, lament, fear, doubt, vengeance. All those things are in the Psalms too. So that means as if we study the whole thing, and our plan as we go through it is um, we've tried to pick for every Sunday a psalm that is a little bit of a different season, a little bit of a different mood, that's in a little bit of a different place, so that by the end of the summer, we'll have opened up the doors of our heart to every kind of human emotion, and we will live that, we will have expressed that before the face of God. So the psalms don't just teach you to, don't just express those human emotions, they teach you to do it corum deo an old Latin phrase which means before the face of God. And we start appropriately with Psalm 1. Uh, it's an interesting, a tidy little psalm, an interesting place. The Holy Spirit has inspired this to be the first psalm. And it's different than a lot of the other psalms. It's not a prayer, right? Most of the psalms are prayers. That's what we think of them. This is not a prayer. It's more of a proclamation. It's kind of a foundational statement. So the psalmist stands up and says, this is how the world is, people. This is the foundation of things. This is where we start. Now, as we go on, we'll explore other places too, but here's where it all begins. Let's listen. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. So the very first word of Psalm 1 is blessed. It's the Hebrew word asherah. Blessed is the one who that word, if you look at other translations, gets translated different ways. Sometimes it's translated as happy. Happy is the one who. So right from the very beginning, at the very beginning of Psalms, 
the poet of this particular psalm, we don't know who it is, wants us to say, wants us to see that I am going to show you the path to happiness. I am going to show you the way of blessing. I am going to show you the path of human flourishing. That is where this journey begins, on the path of blessing. It's a good place to start. It's very engaging because heaven knows we're all looking for that path, right? We're all looking for the path of happiness. And not just church people, everyone's looking for that path. The search for happiness is at least as old as Aristotle. If you remember any of, if you had any philosophy or learned about Aristotle at any point in your life, you may remember that the central concern of his philosophy, everything that it pointed towards was something called eudaimonia, which means happiness. So everything he ever wrote, that great man, was aimed at happiness, finding that path. The search for happiness is as contemporary as all the journals and articles that are studying happiness today. There's a whole division of psychology these days, which is called the psychology of happiness. So there are papers on happiness studies. There are journals on happiness studies. There are lots of surveys. You've probably read them in the press of the kinds of things we can do that lead to happiness and the kinds of things we do that, that lead away from happiness. Everybody is looking for this path. Someone wants to show us God's answer to the place of that path. The way of happiness according to Scripture and to God. And the psalmist says, it's all about what you love. The path to happiness is all about what you delight in. Blessed is the person whose delight is in the law of God and who meditates on that law both day and night. You want to know the path to happiness? You want to know the way to flourishing? What do you love? What delights you? What makes your heart sing? Because the person who finds the true path to flourishing and happiness and blessing is the one whose delight is in the words and the ways and the things of God. That's what's entailed in that little word law. That's true, we see here, it says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That word in the Hebrew is Torah. And commentators agree. Tim Keller, who I studied on this, also agrees. Uh, may he rest in peace agrees that it's more than just rules, right? So when you say, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, it doesn't mean that you are obsessed with rules and that Leviticus is your favorite book of the Bible. It's bigger than that. The Torah of God and delighting in the Torah of God means delighting in all his rules, but also in all his works and his ways. Basically, everything you read in Scripture that tells you about God, that is your delight. That is what you love when you are on the path of blessing. It should not surprise any of us that the path of blessing is all about what we love. If you pay attention to what drives you in this world, um, and what really forms you, and what really grounds you, uh, what you believe is really important, but it's not what drives you. What you think really important, it's not what drives you. The thing that forms and shapes you is what you love. James Lindbergh, who's a retired professor of Old Testament at Bethel Seminary in Minnesota, 
tells a story of something he learned from one of his professors a long, long time ago. So this must be something that happened in the early 20th century. The professor told a story about how his parents wanted him to learn to play the piano. It was their goal that their boy learn to be a piano player. So from an early age, maybe let's say seven years old, they gave him lessons. And to motivate this young boy, they, the mom set up a chart, a little box in it, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It was a little box. And if he practiced, they'd check it off. Good job. That did not motivate the boy. A check mark in a box was insufficient to get him to play his piano every day. So his mom moved on to something a little bit more substantial. He said, I will give you a dollar every week, son, if you will practice your piano. Now, that doesn't sound like much today, but back then, a dollar was quite a lot of money. That also failed to motivate this boy to play the piano. So his mom did what all desperate parents do, threatened the boy. You will play your piano or else. That worked for about a week. Finally, uh, in desperation, mom tried one more thing. She switched piano teachers. And when this young professor went to his first le lesson, he sat down at the piano bench and he thought he was going to start playing scales. And his teacher said, no, 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 no. You go sit over there. I'm going to sit at the piano. And she sat down at the piano. And she played Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. That beautiful, lyrical piece. I don't know if you know it. And that cut that kid in half. He delighted in that music. He absolutely loved what he heard. And he said, I want to play the piano like that. It stirred a love. It stirred a delight in him. And that love was sufficient to make him practice, if not every day, least often enough that as an adult, he ended up playing the piano. You want to know what's driving you? You want to know what's forming you? You want to know which road you're on? Ask yourself, what do I love? What do I really delight in? Is it trivial, ordinary, meaningless stuff, or is it in the deep word and the deep works of the living God? Because what you love is the food that you give to your soul. I mean, just like the food that we eat with our mouths is the food that we give to our bodies and can make us healthy or not, the things that we love are the food for our souls and will determine the healthiness of those of our soul, of our spirit. You know what it makes me think of when you make that analogy? It makes me think of Morgan Spurlock. I don't know if you remember that name. He was the one behind that documentary, Super Size Me, that came out about 20 years ago. Uh, it was a documentary movie where what he decided to do is that for a month, 30 days, he would do nothing but eat McDonald's value meals. So, yeah, right. A burger, and fries, and a pop for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. He just wanted to see what would happen to him if he did that. Well, predictably, it wasn't good. After only five days, he gained nine pounds. After 30 days, he gained a full 20 pounds, but the worst of it was he had all kinds of other stuff. He had heart palpitations, there were other things going on in his body. It was bad enough that someplace in the middle of those 30 days, his doctor said to him, you gotta stop this or you're gonna die. Uh, he didn't stop and fortunately he didn't die. Psalm 1 offers the same kind of cautionary tale in the, in the realm of the spirit. 
If all you eat is spiritual junk food, if, if the things you delight in, if the things that you love are trivial, insubstantial things that do not last in this world, guess what? You will become a trivial, insubstantial thing. You will not be deep. You will not be curious. If all you love and delight in are trivial, meaningless things, you will become trivial and meaningless. You will become, and the metaphor is perfect, like chaff that the wind blows away. Insubstantial. On the other hand, if you delight in God's works, in God's ways, these deep eternal things, you will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. It's funny, when you, when you think about how important these delights are and these spiritual things are, and we're really good at monitoring our physical diet, right? We have all kinds of tools that we can watch what we eat. Everything you buy at the store, right, has that nutrition chart on it. And you can see exactly how much protein and how much fat and even how much of things like riboflavin are in there. But how do we measure our loves? How do you do an honest assessment of what it is that you truly delight in? What are our tools for that? That's not as obvious, right? In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller does offer a suggestion of, of things that you can look at in your life that can give you a sense of what you really delight in and, and what you really love. And he mentions four things that you can do, four ways to self-check your delights. First, he says, pay attention to your daydreams. And if you have a moment of quiet and your mind just starts to wander, where does it wander? Where do you tend to let your mind go? It's a pretty good indication of what you really delight in. Is it stuff? Is it success? Is it sex? Where do your daydreams go? It's a good indication of your delights. Second, pay attention to your money. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Somebody said that once. Where do you spend your money? And not just where do you spend it, where do you like to spend it, right? We all have things that we spend money on, but we have things that we eagerly spend money on, that we're happy to spend our money on. What are those things in your life? Clothes? Cars? Or is it kingdom causes that make you open your wallet? Third, Keller suggests, pay attention to your disappointments. Okay, disappointment is part of life. We all suffer disappointments. But some disappointments, um, we just, we get rid of them quickly, right? They wash over us and we move on. But other disappointments stick with us. They put us in a funk for days. What are the disappointments that stick with you? Does a, a critical word that damage your pride, does that put you in a funk for a couple of days? Does the market going down three days in a row, does that upset you and leave you in a, in a cloud? What are your disappointments? And finally, pay attention to your emotions. In conversation, what are the subjects that make you lean forward? What are the subjects that make you perk up and want to contribute? What are the subjects that make you really angry, that can get your juices going, either towards happiness or towards anger? Politics? Sports? Or maybe it's kingdom things. How do you do at a baptism? Do you delight in a baptism? Does a baptism make your heart sing or do you look at your watch and think, 
Well, that's going to be an hour 10 this service. Daydreams, money spent eagerly, disappointments, emotions. Pay attention to those things. They'll give you a pretty good indication of what delights you and what you love. Why do these loves matter so much? What, what is it that, about our delights and our loves that forms us? Well, the things that we love and that we, we delight in repeatedly tend to harden over time, and they become, for lack of a better word, enculturated. Our loves become a culture. They start to determine who we hang around with. They determine the shape of our life, right? And you can kind of see that in Psalm 1 in the verse, first verse in the negative sense. When the psalmist talks about the wicked, notice what he says. He says, first, blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the step of the wicked. So first you're just walking in the step of the wicked. Doesn't stand in the way. Uh-oh, now you're, now you're kind of getting used to being there. Now you're standing. And the one who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now you're part of a community. Now your wickedness has become enculturated. That's how it works. As a kid, you decide Michigan football, that's your favorite sport. You're going to be a Michigan fan. And you start, you start to watch games with your dad once in a while, that's great. And you get the hat, and you get the shirt. Pretty soon, you're organizing your whole Saturday around the game, making sure that wherever you are, you're in place to watch that game, man, because you're not going to miss that game. And then you get the U of M license plate, and uh, you start to tailgate and hang out with the Michigan faithful. And before you know it, you're getting buried in a maize and blue coffin. And that's how it works, right? And I'm not here ripping on Michigan or Michigan State, and there's nothing wrong with being a college football fan. I am a college football fan. But it's a trivial thing, right? It's no, it's no stream to feed the whole of your life. There is only one stream that will make you flourish and fruitful. And that stream flows from the new Jerusalem. Flows from the throne of the living God where the ascended Jesus sits, the throne of the Lamb, flows right out from that throne and it flows from there because he has died and he has risen. And in that stream is his grace and his Easter power. There's all sorts of life-giving stuff in that stream. It flows down from the throne, goes right through the middle of the New Jerusalem. There's trees on both sides of that river and it bears its fruit in season and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. And then it flows down and flows into here. It flows right through that font. And we bring our children there and we put their roots by that stream and we baptize them. And we promise that we will continue to help them deepen their roots in that stream of living water. And the stream flows here every single Sunday. And you come in you're tired and you're perplexed and you drink from that stream. And you do it Sunday after Sunday and you drink and little by little your roots grow deeper and they grow deeper until all of a sudden one day the promises of this place, the living God who reigns in this place, the concerns of these people, the concerns of his church become absolutely central in your life. They are your delight. Let me say one more thing. You hear this psalm and you hear my words 
And I'm sure you're saying, yeah, Peter, I know you're right. I, I know my life is supposed to be rooted in God. And you're absolutely right about where the true source of blessing comes from. But if I'm honest with myself, if I were to go through those four tests to see what I really love and where my roots really go, I, I know I, I, I don't love the Lord as I should. I got all kinds of trivial stuff that gets more than its share of attention. I do not love the Lord with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. My roots are nowhere deep as they should be. Well, welcome to the club. And take heart. Because ultimately, there is only one person whose roots go all the way down into this stream. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. There's only one person who did that who truly delights in the law of the Lord, who truly delights in all his works and all his ways, and that's Jesus. And you belong to him. He is the true vine, and you are the branches. You've been grafted into him. So your roots may not be that great, and you may know it, but his roots are awesome, and you're grafted into him, and so his living water flows up into you. And the strength of of your rootedness doesn't come from your little roots, it comes from his eternal roots. And you may feel very uprootable, but nothing can uproot Jesus, not even death can uproot him or you. So, if you have joy, if when the season of drought comes you have no worry, if you keep bearing fruit even in hard seasons, Thanks be to God and know that this has less to do with you than everything to do with him. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your eternally strong roots and that by your grace we've been grafted into you. You are the true vine, we are the branches. We thank you that we can drink this living water that comes from the deep, places of your grace and faithfulness because we need it, Lord. We need it every single week. Strengthen us again this week as we sit by your stream and delight in you. Amen.